This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Welcome to Beltway Banthas, the Star Wars and politics podcast coming at you from our nation's hive of scum and villainy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Suara Sala, and today we're going to be discussing Claudia Gray's latest novel to the Star Wars franchise, Leia, Princess of Alderaan. We're going to be discussing uh, the events of the book, Leia's growth and understanding of her place in the rebellion and about the politics of rebellion. And for this venture, we are joined by very special guest, Trisha Barr, co-host of the Fangirl Going Rogue podcast and founder of Fangirl Blog. Trisha, thank you so much for being here tonight, and how are you doing? I'm ready to talk about Leia. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Glad to hear it. And also joining us is contributor to the show, John Liang. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Really looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. I'm really excited to dig in. I got to tell you guys, this is actually my favorite Star Wars canon novel thus far. Just out of curiosity, where would it rank for y'all in your uh, the new canon novels? I'm going to say second to Lost Stars. Nice. John. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Probably, probably the same thing. Yeah. Nice. All right, then. So uh, before we get to that, we've had a bit of Star Wars news recently. Um, just today, we had a new behind-the-scenes uh, video drop for The Last Jedi. <laughs> <It was> awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. Uh, it was just a two-minute video. It was just Ryan Johnson talking about the making of the film. Uh, Trisha, did you happen to catch this today? Yeah, and I was like, gosh, I hope we get to talk about this stuff while we <laughs> podcast. Because usually you record, and then they drop this kind of stuff. So of we course. lucked out. Yeah, we totally lucked out. Yeah, exactly. What was your favorite part from the behind-the-scenes reel? Um, all the little times we get to see Poe and also Rose, because we didn't see her in the trailer. I understand why, but it was cool to see her and... We saw Poe in the Millennium Falcon, so that was kind of new. Yeah, that was really cool. So hopefully Poe will be meeting up with Ray, and we can actually get some interaction between the two. Uh, John, what was your favorite part? I guess I liked uh, seeing Finn and uh, um, uh, Rose, Rose yeah. walking through in, I mean, the Imperial, in their Imperial uniforms. It's, it just really got me looking forward to whatever that fight that we saw in the most recent actual trailer with him fighting Phasma. I'm looking forward to see how they... Get, get to that point. Oh, yeah. There's so many strands, like, between the scenes that uh, we're going to see, like, unfold in the film. But also, I don't know if you guys noticed, but in that scene of uh, Finn and Rose walking through the Imperial Hall, joining them was another new character in The Last Jedi. I saw this earlier today on Twitter. Apparently, do, shall, do you want me to tell you, or shall I leave that? Go for it. it it's DJ. DJ's walking with them. I didn't notice that. Oh, yeah. shoot. Yeah, yeah. So, so, like, uh, apparently, like, he's getting in on the Imperial operation, so... <laughs> then again, I couldn't really see watch it very many times because I was at work when it first dropped, so... <laughs> Darn them, they don't wait until we're ready. Seriously. <laughs> Not that my productivity was any good after, after watching that, but, you know, still. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 
Yeah, it's just like always at the most inconvenient time. I have to squeeze it into my lunch hour however way I can. <laughs> but we've also had, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of our favorite series has just started up again, Rebels. And uh, we've had four episodes. It's been out for two weeks. And what Disney XD is doing is they're coming out with two-parter episodes each week. So much better. Actually, yeah, yeah, I want to ask uh, Trisha, what do you think of this new model of having the two-parters for uh, yeah, new Rebels episodes? think it's better for adults maybe not as much for kids and Mm. there's a there's a lot of reasons for that they don't have as long attention span so you could see kind of the narrative of the two arcs that were going on but you know our kids to sitting and watching it for that long maybe not so you know there's there's plus and minuses to doing in that way wait this is a kid's show (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> I never got that memo. Uh, wait, wait, ter- wait! Terrorism, extremism, <laughs> and like uh, guerrilla tactics—that's not part of regular kids' TV. Right, romance, you know, hey, the whole thing. <laughs> you, you could see them str- struggling a bit because they would use like the fog when Saw went at it with, you know, and so right. there were different things. You know, they were trying. Oh, the door shut right when they were really getting into it with stormtroopers the first time. So they had to kind of um, block things definitely <laughs> that we would have seen in you know in the movie theater for a PG-13 film. Right, right. <laughs> right, totally. It always uh, surprises me like watching both Clone Wars which I actually just watched the full uh, way through this year and uh, Rebels like how uh, deep they're able to dig and the themes they're able to touch upon while still keeping it like you know relatively um, I want to say like PG for kids and that's what's so great about Star Wars always it, you know it's primarily geared towards like a younger generation or for kids but it really spans for all generations it's for everyone which is fantastic yeah what did you think of the um, the death trooper Trisha I wasn't surprised that all this stuff showed up. It was Jennifer Hale. I thought that they would say a little bit more about that, you know, there was a female voicing it. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like, oh, at first I, w- I see review copies. And so the sound isn't as good if you don't have like Got a, it. You know, headphones on. Mm-hmm. So at first I didn't even realize it was a woman. It wasn't until the second time when I put my headphones on. I was like, oh, okay. That's <laughs> uh, new and different. Because if you didn't have her in there, that episode was totally male except for Sabine Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know all the other they had introduced all these characters and I'm like none of the women are talking it's all the male you know you made all these models and one guy is talking for all the refugees and then I'm like oh okay the death trooper is female so you know I want to know what when did that change happen? Because they could have done that really late in the game. Mm, absolutely. You know, re- revoiced it. So that's mm-hmm. kind of like, if they did, if it was late in the game, that's, I'm fine with it. But it, it's just, then it was, you could see how the episode was written with so many men and they, they came back and fixed it. So either way, I don't care, but um, it was definitely, it did something different. Cause you know, the model didn't look feminine at all, but you know, Phasma, you can tell it's a lady for sure. She's just a lady with a lot of stature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, it just so happens that it's a woman character and it doesn't have to, the armor doesn't have to be changed to accommodate for that. It's still the same basic build of human. Like, you know, uh, that's something I really liked about Phasman, which Gwendolyn Christie herself said that she really appreciated. This is just about like, my presence uh, like emotionally, mentally in this role. It has nothing to do with like my body, which 
you know, I think like more Hollywood roles for women could really focus on. And I'm really glad you touched upon this topic, Trisha, because something I noticed in this episode, these episodes, which I did really like overall, but there did seem to be a lot of talking down to women uh, by male characters, specifically from Saw Gerrera, whom I actually liked a little more in this episode, but still, like, I got my issues with him. But yeah, what do you think about that? I have a lot of thoughts, actually, on that. If you play it out the way, if as an adult, if you're looking at it and Saw's lecturing Ma Mothma and she's going through character growth and at the end she's vindicated, within the arc of that 30 minutes, she's not vindicated. And you also see Kanan tell Hera a lot of things when typically Hera is the one who's mm-hmm. sort of in charge. There was a lot of, of men talking at women in the first half mm-hmm. of that those two parters and then Mamatha is vindicated but it's never acknowledged it's all through Ezra and Sabine's eyes and more so Ezra because it's his series so I thought there were some ways I would have redlined some stuff I would have waved my hand and said I think you could do a couple of things differently and it would have changed the dynamic and they're really they're really small but to me they jumped out from the first viewing I was like okay uh, Kanan usually doesn't talk to Hera this way. It's usually Hera the other way around. And so they're like little things like she could have said, use the force and help me fly. Uh, that kind of stuff, as opposed mm-hmm. to him telling her that this is how we're going to do it. And I'm not going to get into the whole, the ghost probably could fly in that fog anyway. Uh, part of <laughs> there's a problem when you use technology you need to acknowledge what the technology can do and not get yourself Tim- Timothy Zahn and Aaron Alston used to talk about this a lot to make sure you right. don't end up doing things even in a kids show that aren't possible right. and sometimes uh, people who get too into writing and not much thinking about their you know that's why I like Claudia Gray she's a lawyer <laughs> I'm going to go spin it around <laughs> Claudia Gray's a lawyer and she's in the real real world and you can see the real world, the politics and the way people work and all that stuff come into her stories. And sometimes writers in Hollywood don't live in the real world uh, and that reflects in their storytelling. How was that for a spin? Oh, it yeah. Makes sense. Oh, yeah. I totally agree. And I really like what you just said uh, at the end there that often it seems like writers don't live in the real world or some of my gripes with movies and uh, some TV shows, even in Star Wars, is sometimes I think to myself, is this the way people actually talk? I mean, and I'm not saying <laughs> yeah. like on Earth or anything like that, but just as, uh, for lack of a better term, sentient beings is this the way they talk to each other and is it consistent with the character that we've seen span throughout the series or through the movies? And yeah, there were some problems I felt with that, this episode in that regard, which again, I still liked overall, but I wish they had done better in that regard. Um, moving on, uh, John, you told me about this, uh, earlier. There's apparently a new Stormtroopers book yeah, this week. What is it? It's, uh, it's called Star Wars Storm- Stormtroopers Beyond the Armor and it's by Ryder Windham and Adam Bray and it basically goes into a lot of detail about the stormtroopers and how they were, uh, how their army armor was built and everything else for all the movies. I'll have more to say about that during my Bowie Bantha, but sorry, during my Bantha fodder at the end of the episode or awesome. later on in the episode. 
Awesome. Trisha, yeah. Yeah, I know about this because when Adam and I were on book tour for Star Wars Visual Encyclopedia, you get to drive around a lot, and he's talking about this book that's coming out that he worked really hard on. And Ryder was actually one of my first mentors in all of just getting into writing. And he read the first, uh, let's see, the first third, the first act of my own novel, Wind, Mm -hmm. and gave me some insight. So these are two guys that I really like, and uh, it's a... It's. I was at Lucasfilm when a bunch of the guys from the 501st got their first look at this. Movie. Oh my god, that must have been amazing. <laughs> yeah, so they were thumbing through, and I know that. And ooh, you know, they know everything. They they have so much inside knowledge, but they were kind of tapped into to ask questions about this book, and it's beautiful. So yeah. Yeah, but but really quick, verdict uh, is awesome. Awesome. <laughs> I, I can't wait to get my hands on it. Uh, yeah, I've had the visual dictionary since like 1998, 99. And yeah, I just, I just like love getting into these details. And uh, yeah, especially on Stormtroopers, like, is their armor actually effective? I want to know <laughs> that. <laughs> like, like, is there actually some benefit to it? Um, like, can is there some defense against Ewoks or something? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on this. All right. So I think we're all ready to get into our discussion on... Claudia Gray's latest book, Leia, Princess of Alderaan. We've got a lot to get through talking about this book, so let's dive in. So I just want to ask everyone, what did you think about this book? And how do you think Claudia Gray was able to further deepen and enrich in uh, galactic politics? John, let's start with you. What do you think? I liked how it basically sort of reminded me of be, like, being in high school and going to model, like Model UN mm. and sort of learning how, a, how the world works, learning how to uh, negotiate, how to... All the give and take of, of basically of politics um, that I guess th- that is something of what Leia goes through when she's a junior senator um, and how and all the different things she has to go through and how she learns you know by trial and error what works and what doesn't so that, that's what the one thing that really sort of uh, jumped out at me when I first read it mm-hmm. Trisha what are your thoughts I love the model UN analogy I hadn't thought of that <laughs> but it's been a long time since high school great point this is I'm a fanfic writer. That's how I started in in the message boards and everything. Claudia Gray's a fanfic writer, and I felt like she went all in and all the things that, I, as a fan, I would like to see she brought in. But she and this is also, uh, I think she had a lot of practice, so she knew what she wanted to do with this character, and mm-hmm. she just went for it. So I applaud her. I echo everything you both just said. This is my favorite. Like I said previously, this is this is my favorite Star Wars canon novel. Uh, I I've always loved Alderaan. I've always loved uh, Bale and Breha Organa. I've always loved um, like just. I mean, Alderaan has always been portrayed as this somewhat utopian society that's steeped in the arts, philosophy, science, and seems to have just, like, made it there beyond any world in the galaxy. But I've always sort of felt a deeper connection with that. And the thing is, I've actually... Like I mentioned, I've always loved Bail Organa. Like, his character, played by Jimmy Smith in the prequels, was always one of my favorites. And 
always resonated with me because I thought here is a man who is like so devoted, who's so calm, patient, someone I would like to be like, who can raise along with Breha, someone as amazing and as courageous and with amazing leadership qualities such as Leia. And that's what I was really looking forward to. And what Claudia Gray was able to do so effectively was give us deep insights into Algeranian culture, society, the royalty, their interactions in galactic politics, how they were able to navigate their way to being part of the rebellion while still making sure that the empire didn't clamp down on them. And uh, I just absolutely love this book and Leia's journey and what she learns. And it's... uh, I, I recommend, like all of our listeners, obviously listening to this. Presumably, you've read it, but if you haven't, oh well, yeah, spoilers it, ahead. By the way, <laughs> yeah, spoilers ahead. By the way, <laughs> if you haven't read it, please get your hands on this book because it is mesmerizing, in my opinion. So now we are going into our deeper conversation, and like John said, full spoilers for Leia, Princess of Alderaan. So we are going to be going topic by topic about different aspects of the novel. So, like. Like I mentioned, uh, Claudia Gray gives us tremendous insight into the Alderanian royalty. And the very first scene in this novel is actually Leia on her, quote, day of demand. This is the day in which she asserts her future claim to the throne and which she has to complete her trials in order to do this. And... uh, through the course of the novel, as we see Leia undertake these challenges, she increases and ferments her sense of resolution for rebellion and to fight the Empire. And Breha and Bale like, are, are explored in depth, just like I mentioned before. And through Leia's mercy missions, she sees more of the horrors the Empire uh, has committed. And again, like increases her resolution. And uh, yeah, I'm curious, uh, Trisha, what do you think about Breha and Bale like, uh, as they themselves are navigating their own place towards uh, rebellion in this novel? Well, the day of demand looking at as a storyteller sets up Leia's internal tri- voyage and also Alderaan's. They're do- they're having the same process where Alderaan's going to figure out how where it's going to be in the rebellion, and Leia is too. They're having essentially the same journey externally and internally. So it's a really smart setup to see that and just see the royalty play out. Breha, and it's funny because you say Breha, and I'm glad you do. The audiobook apparently says Bria because we talked about <laughs> <Really>? it. <laughs> yeah, they, which is really weird because, we, you know, especially if you're a EU person, Bria is a different character. Right. So, yeah, so I say Breha, so I'm glad you guys too, I'm gonna stick with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like potato, potato. Um, but Breha seems to me just, we learn this over the course of the book, that she's already committed to war. She knows where this is going to go. And this is Bale's journey to mm-hmm. deciding that he, where he doesn't want, I mean, nobody wants to go to war, but he's having to come to that realization that this is the only option. And I think Mom Mothma is fully on that side of there is no, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to convince them for to mm-hmm. change his mind. And I, and do something different. So, you know, we can all, th- we can all hope someone will act more like a leader with compassion, but it's not, they know it's not going to happen. Right. Right. And yeah, it's really uh, great to see the woman really uh, taking the hold and really forwarding uh, the 
everyone else towards rebellion, uh, Bale and Leia and Aldron as a whole, it would seem. So I want to like talk about this one specific scene uh, towards the beginning of the novel in which Leia is visiting a world that we visited in Rogue One called Wobani. So this mercy mission of hers where she goes to deliver aid to the excuse me, thousands of uh, or millions of starving Wobani citizens. Basically, Wobani has been stripped for, uh, for resources by the Empire, and the people are living in an extremely impoverished state. And Leia's mercy mission there encapsulates everything about her character and how she uh, ferments her sense of rebellion and, like, everything I really love about Leia. So... Leia is not allowed to really do anything more other than deliver the aid she's able to to Wobani at the beginning of the scene. And she does the most brazenly <laughs> Leia thing, which I absolutely loved. What she, she says, okay, you know what? I need to hire people for my ship. She hires hundreds of Wobani refugees to her ship. And you see her in the novel. She's just making up positions do, just, do, so do, do, do. <laughs> just so she can save them. And I like, I'm curious for y'all's thoughts while reading this, because I know as we discover later on, this wasn't the smartest thing to do, but, um, I just like really loved it. Uh, Don, what did you think of this scene? I loved how impetuous, impetuous she was. And also it also highlighted the fact that, yeah, she is a teenager still. She still clearly got a lot to learn about how the real world works. And so this was her way of, you know, doing her best and yet then having that come back to bite her later on. Right. Trisha, what are your thoughts? It's a great character establishing moment. If you don't know anything, <laughs> you could, I mean, you could read this book and that would tell you essentially what you need to know about the character and, you know, ultimately the repercussions of it. Teenagers rarely think of that. And that's kind of what happens. And definitely have you guys watched any of the movies since reading this book? Any of the original trilogy? Oh, jeez. Oh, I have. I, I don't think I have yet. I'm in the middle of like my rewatch run up to the last Jedi and we haven't gone there yet. I, I watched oh, uh, you know, I watched a new hope a couple of, like a, a couple of weeks ago, like maybe a week after I read the book, this book. And it just it, that watching you, you can't wa- watch on the hope anymore and watch it the same way you could. You watched it before. It's just impossible. Exactly. It was, oh my God. Particularly when, um, you know, of course, when the Death Star blows up Alderaan, it, you, you, there's a whole completely different frame of reference right. now right. For, we'll, for watching that scene. Right. We'll get there, John. Yeah, yeah Trisha, continue what you were saying, please. Oh, I'm, but I'm just saying that the, this moment in the way, you know, when they talk about the mercy missions and that's what she, you know, spews at Darth Vader or Tarkin, whoever. But that's her excuse. It's we're on a mercy mission to Darth Vader, right? Mm-hmm. And and the, there it is, right? And he's like, yeah, you're not doing that anymore, kid. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so in, in your opinion, Trisha, how does Leia throughout the course of the novel become more resolute in her commitment to fighting the Empire? I mean, obviously, we see what happens at Wobani and we see other atrocities. But what did you make of Leia's overall journey towards the person we see in A New Hope? Well, Claudia is really smart and knows that Star Wars are their young adult stories. They've been from the beginning. So this is her awakening from the age of innocence. So instead of Luke having his adoptive parents killed and told you have a destiny, she has all these other moments where she realizes that the world she lives in is not safe. And not only is she not safe, nobody's safe. And so she has to decide what she's going to do about it. And, And in the way that you know, 
daughter father relationship she also has to, you know is it that some some of it is that her parents don't want her to get involved that she mm-hmm. goes even more so i mean that's so teenager so <laughs> don't tell me don't tell kids not to do something because then they're going to <laughs> exactly exactly we were all rebellious teenagers and i think we all like carry that spark of rebellion that leia has like like throughout this uh, novel so now i just want to talk more uh broadly about Alderaan and its role in the rebellion. So we know from uh, all the way back 1977 when Leia says Alderaan is peaceful. We have no weapons. They're traditionally a pacifistic world vying for galactic peace and prosperity. But the novel shows how Balin Breha and other, uh, I think uh, one or two other elites of Alderaan, Leia included, uh, realize, hey, this is intolerable what the empire is doing throughout the galaxy and it shows them realizing how they need to take up more aggressive tactics against palpatine and we mentioned saw guerrera at the beginning of our episode so spoiler alert something happens in the novel (laughs) saw guerrera assassinates uh captain or in this case moff panaka two tubes two two or yeah two tubes and yeah Yeah. like exactly he was the one that murdered uh moff panaka and he was actually one of the imperials breha and bale thought they could negotiate with to dampen the empire's heinous actions and like with that assassination i think you're seeing a lot of like pressuring of um yeah like breha bale mon mothma like to take up like more active arms against the empire. Uh, Trisha, do you think that Saw Gerrera directly impacted Bale and Breha's uh, psychology or sorry, their mentality in terms of how they want to go towards rebellion? Apparently Saw likes to assassinate a lot of people. (laughs) This is a very similar plot point to another young adult book uh, called Rebel Rising. Right. But you know, he, he has, <laughs> he has no qualms about taking it to the empire wherever he can. Uh, it, it's and it's a convenient plot point because mm. Panaka recognizes Leia. Absolutely, uh, it, he thinks he knows her. So that was one of my favorite moments in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he Saw is a fantastic character, mm-hmm. uh, just all the way around, fantastic in that. He is so conflicted, but you empathize with him sometimes. And then you're like, man, I think he might be crazy. (laughs) (laughs) He's so multi-layered. You're right. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, and and we're probably really lucky that Forrest Whitaker came in and keeps doing the role. Mm, Yeah. Andrew Cascino, who did originally did Sagara mm-hmm. and did an amazing job. But, you know, he kind of brings that, you know, sometimes he sounds really reasonable. Like it would be really reasonable to assassinate somebody. <laughs> and then he says something else and you're like, mm, I might be listening to a madman. So <laughs> yeah, I, I like where, where he takes the story and that he shows just how on the edge this whole, you know, how far... Leia or Breha or Bale or Ma and Mothma could go where they could end up to in this story. I think what's really interesting about this, so I haven't made uh, a secret to my our listeners about how much like I've, I don't want to say like na- at this current moment I dislike Saw Gerrera, but rather I haven't been the biggest fan of him overall. I think I'm understanding more about 
the intricacies of what he brings to this dynamic of rebellion in the galaxy. And I understand and appreciate how he encourages the rebellion to take up these more active arms against the Empire. And instead of just doing mercy missions, instead of just like uh, like damaging their supply lines or something like that, it's more about, hey, they're an oppressive force in the galaxy and they do need to be engaged with. I think that when you put in the context of how the rebellion, this is something we're seeing in Rebels. Oh, just to make clear to our listeners, uh, Leia, Princess of Valdron takes place before Rebels, or at least Rebels Season 2. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting to see that like Saw Gerrera actually had an impact in, the re- in maybe creating the uh, modus operandi of the rebellion that we see in Episode 4. Uh, John, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Not, not just that, but also in Rebels as well. I mean, I, I know I read a, a sizable chunk of the book last night and wound up going, uh, going to bed a little bit late because of it. Um, but one of the things that, one of the scenes that I read was, of course, when Two Tubes kills uh, Moff Panaka, and that also took me back, and I also just yesterday watched, you know, those two episodes of Rebels, and in that first episode when you've got uh, uh, Mon Mothma and uh, Saw Gerrera basically arguing, and Mon Mothma telling Saw, you know, that he basically, he kills innocents, and it, it brought, if I were to watch that scene again, Having you know reread that scene, in the, the scene in *Land Princess of Alderaan*, it gives it a whole new meaning of why Mon Mothma is so opposed to the way uh, Sagar goes about doing what he does. Right, right. Yeah. Again, this like harkens back to like this realization I'm having about how pivotal Saw may have actually been in the formation of the rebellion and just like getting them to actually be effective. But I want to like touch back because uh, Trisha, I know you really like the scene about Leia meeting Moff Panaka on Naboo. Like she goes there, uh, I believe, to help some miners in need on a Naboo moon and the Moff or, or, like, the Empire generally is acting very badly, but the Queen of Naboo at that time thinks that, hey, we can reason with Moff Panaka because he's actually, like, a nicer guy. And, Trisha, I know, like, you're a big fan of Padme and Naboo and just it, what was going through your mind, uh, like, not only was Leia going back, to, was going to Naboo, but also going to help her mother's people, like, uh, that were in desperate need like that. And she wore the dress. Yes. I mean, I was like, they don't say it, but you know it. I mean, like, you know it's the dress. It's mm-hmm. obvious it's the dress. So I'm having these, like, moments. I'm like, oh, my God. She's wearing the dress, which is the moment when they celebrate peace, right? That's what right. that dress is from. And you see the, the, you know, the queen trying to still do something. This, these young women trying to do something. How are we going to do it? We can go to Mafa Panaka. And there's there's an interesting thing in that, in that he's not necessarily a bad guy, but his mm-hmm. affiliations are in the wrong place. And maybe right. he's maybe he know you don't know because we don't get enough of him. But maybe he knows that. Maybe he maybe he thinks if he stays there, he can at least help people. He obviously mm. tries, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know. He he felt like maybe the John McCain of the yes. world. <laughs> <laughs> am I allowed to like? Am I allowed to make real world references? Absolutely, every as much that, as you can. That, yeah, that's what we do on this show. Please. <laughs> so that was kind of well. At least if we're going to relate it to you know this current events right now, mm-hmm. and maybe there might be a few other senators I could name today, but <laughs> uh, you know where he's maybe trying to do the right thing. So uh, and and not there, but I mean, 
Naboo and handmaidens, and there should be more, just mm-hmm. in general, and, uh, <laughs> and and all, and all that. So, you know, it was it's a it's a big moment, and I I wanted to know more. They they could do a whole book on Mothman Panaka. That's my oh, yeah. Like, how did he get there? I mean, we all loved Darth Plagueis, the people who read it, the kind of the politics of Naboo and get there. And I do want to say one other thing Mm -hmm. about Alderaan specifically and this whole political dynamic. We like to think of is it a pacifistic world because of some lines of dialogue. Mm -hmm. But we would also like to think that the U.S. is that way, too. Uh, other, you know, other any country like, for that matter, right? Yeah. So, you know, and she she's a young woman saying this, and maybe they've evolved beyond war, and they they want to think that. But as a person who has written stories, you always have to remember that characters are de- delivering lines of sometimes what they would like to think they're part mm-hmm. of, and not necessarily what their world is. Yeah. So I don't I don't know that we truly have an understanding of the capabilities of Alderaan. And I say that, too, as someone who wrote the Star Wars, ultimate Star Wars entry for Alderaan. And it was one of the things I had to kind of battle Mm -hmm. to get in there was Alderaan's important. A lot of other planets are important because they're ice planets like Hoth. There's nothing Mm -hmm. there, right? And Dagobah, nothing there to it except that it's a jungle. Okay, that's fine. But when I was writing about Alderaan, I was inserting some of the politics. I had to go look at different things. And that was... I was very careful how I worded things because you don't want to put things that aren't necessarily in there. So I avoided like something like that. Lay could be an unreliable narrator on that. <laughs> but in the in the scope of like the Clone Wars and things that George Lucas taught us that Alderaan is an important player in the galaxy, it is likely because at some point they were a, they're a strong planet and they have to defend yeah. themselves yeah. so i don't th- i don't know that they're that means they don't have weapons and they don't have the ability to defend themselves they don't have a strong military even just means that they choose not to use it yeah i mean to your point Trisha, i mean at the very the very opening scene of the book and the very closing scene of the book leia walks in not carrying say an olive branch or you know uh anything of, of an instrument of peace she walks in carrying a sword yeah. Yep. So there you go, right there for and, just to, just to your point. And Trisha, you're actually reminding me. I think of something I read in a visual dictionary, or maybe in the data bank, or it might have been expanded universe. But I think it could still absolutely apply that Alderaan actually did have a large cache of weapons. But after the atrocities of the Clone Wars, they made a concrete decision, like, no, we are going to be a peaceful world. Like we don't, you know, maybe they're traditionally very peaceful, but still had weapons. But they were like, no, we're going to double down on this. But I think another thing to mention is that, like, Alderaan is still a key facilitator of the rebellion. Presumably, I mean, they're definitely giving, obviously, as we see in the novel, they're giving logistical support. Breha and Bale are hosting these dinner, quote, dinner parties, sometimes that go till dawn, in which they have senators excuse me, from all around the galaxy, and they're discussing rebel tactics and activities, and presumably, Breha and Bale are... uh, uh, have giving uh, financial support to rebels across the galaxy. So what I'm curious is, what do you two think the people of Alderaan would think? I mean, I forget if we have any specific mention of this in the novel, but Trisha, do you? what do you think like the general populace of Alderaan might think? Are, are there leaders taking them into a battle that they don't really want to go into? Well, I think when you're... 
the one thing we could take away maybe from Alderaan from our own real world is that sometimes we are the bliss of being successful. You don't realize maybe the other things that are happening going on outside them because it's not real to them. They don't have a connection. So I think they're just, there probably are people on Alderaan who know about things, who might have family elsewhere, who might have, you know, people in that working in the empire, people who have feelings. I don't know if they have Twitter, but I'm sure there's some <laughs> way that they're, they're reaching out or, you know, there's some way of communicating. We have to know that they're an advanced civilization. So, but most people just want to go on and they're worried about, you know, my car doesn't work today. My cat's sick. My kid has a test and, you know, they haven't studied those type of things and then you have all this other stuff that's going on out there so who is it really who does it really matter to there's people there's key leadership that knows what's going on and everybody else is blissfully anywhere and this Mm -hmm. i'm saying this too as someone who's worked in the pentagon Mm -hmm. and worked in other jobs that you there are things that people just will never know and (laughs) and they don't i don't think they want to know like right. yeah. they want to know about that. So there are going to be people who are going to be activists and there are going to be a lot more people who are just like, hey, my life's comfortable. It doesn't affect me. Yeah. And if you were in Washington, D.C., I mean, it's basically like it's it, it's there's the inside the beltway mentality. Then there's the outside the beltway mentality. Um, and I'm wondering if they have the same sort of thing in, like on Alderaan World where like in their own little bubble, mm. they may see what's going on. But. Everybody outside of that, like say the governmental sphere, doesn't see it. They just want to go on with their lives or do you know their business and that kind of thing. And maybe some of those may not want to have anything to do with anything going on in the outside world. And others may be involved in say trade. I mean, Alderaan is a very prosperous world. Mm. I would imagine it can't just be prosperous, prosperous based on the business that it does within its own within its own planet. It would have to also be prosperous with, with the business it does with other planets as well. So there's probably another separate section of people who are there who understand what's going on and may have different ideas as to how to go about either A, keeping their businesses prosperous and B, uh, maybe changing the way things are run. I love this discussion, guys. Like you're giving me, both of you are giving me such great <laughs> insights into my favorite, like uh, canon planet, uh, R.I.P. Alderaan. Uh, Can I make another? Yeah, I'm please, make another please. Anou- I worked in the so where I worked in the Pentagon I was actually in the Air Force Space Command. Oh yeah, I was, yeah. I was locked in a vault <laughs> in the Pentagon. It was a really cool job, it, and I was an in, that was when I was an intern uh, in engineering school. But like, it's public knowledge how that you can find out how much the budget for going into space is military related. Absolutely. And people have no idea how much <laughs> of the NASA budget or it's not really NASA budget, the Air Force mm-hmm. was contributing to it. It's at least 50% military intention. Mm-hmm. And But we never talk about that. We talk about going into space and exploration and the bettering of mankind. But they're going, they're going up there for a lot of other reasons. And this was you know, I'm, I'm 20, over 20 years out of college. So this is a long time ago and it hasn't, you know, it hasn't changed. These are, but but most people don't think about it. They're like, Oh, we're going to space. So we can get a man on the, (laughs) you know, on the moon. 
you know, what they're doing is these people in this court, it's the same thing, right? They're having mm-hmm. these conversations about military and other things that nobody yeah. else really wants to know about. I can tell you from personal experience, because I've been covering the Pentagon for 20 years now, and I've and one of the things we cover is basically how DOD spends the money it gets from Congress every year. So we go all the way into the nitty-gritty, into all the little different line items where all that money is, is transferred from one thing to another, and they make these decisions internally before they make them public. We find out about them before that so that, you know, so that uh, defense contractors can go and uh, lobby their, you know, their Congress people and say, "Hey, if you if we lose money from this, you're going to lose jobs in your district." Ergo, then the con- members of Congress will then write a letter to D- to DOD, the, the Defense Department, and say, "Hey, if you do this, you know, we uh, we will lose you'll lose jobs in your district." So, and then Congress will say, "Hey, this is very important for national security. This particular, you know, <laughs> missile or you know, gun or, or ship or whatever." So, yeah. yeah. Man, y'all are so cool. <laughs> I'd love to like get more discussion about this, but we have to move yeah, on uh, talking about the novel. So, uh, we mentioned, or Trisha, you mentioned earlier, like uh, how much you appreciated, or how much we all really appreciated seeing Breha like at the uh, head, really like head of the rebellion on Aldron, mm-hmm. and it was really Bale who we see struggling throughout the novel to find his and his family's place and what they're going to do. But Breha has such a I, yeah, I'm just going to say it, like a really calming and very like steadfast presence throughout. And she seems very confident of what she wants to do and how she wants to lead her world and help facilitate the rebellion. And um, yeah, like she's organizing all these rebel congregations and activities on Aldron while Bale is organizing in the Senate. And I, I there was just like one quote uh, from pages 178 to 179 where Breha is speaking to Leia. I'm just going to read it out here for a second. I am a daughter of Alderaan. My mother raised me to cherish peace as I am trying to raise you. I'm no warmonger, yet I am also no fool, and only fools would believe that Palpatine's rule could be ended without violence. When he learns of an organized rebellion, as someday he must, if we're ever going to accomplish more than whispering in back rooms, he'll demand our blood. If we aren't ready to fight back, we'll be doomed." So, Trisha, I think, like, we already heard a couple of thoughts but from you on Breha, but I still want to hear more. What are your thoughts on that specific quote and on Breha's overall role in the novel? And what traits do you think that Leia took from her mother? Like, really, how do you think Breha informed the person that Leia is? She's obviously telling her, you know, her own thoughts. It's a nice way to kind of express the character. And it's also very different from the way a lot of people thought of her before the can you know, pre can mm-hmm. yeah. the expanding universe, or even how people talked about her in fanfic. She was very much dismissed, or the mm. maybe kind of the, you know, there were a lot of different ways that she was represented, and this wasn't it. So I can totally appreciate that she's getting this moment and gets to shine and be part of informing. Li- of who Leia is, but that it's, that's a really bittersweet moment because she's talking about, he'll demand our blood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's telling, we could die. She, <laughs> she knows that. I think she, I think yeah. they both know. And probably one of the things they were trying to do was at some point you were going to need to get enough people activated on Alderaan to say, we're willing to stand up as a planet and defend ourselves. They were mm-hmm. either going to have war come to Alderaan as in the Empire would come and try to take over if they didn't have the Death Star. The Death Star became a really simple tool to just say, okay, we're done with you. Yeah. 
and you know they don't know that it, would it have changed her the way she thought about things I don't know would it or would it have not and Rogue One suggests that you some people would have said ah we're done and <laughs> other people are like we, we have true. to activate even more one way or another war was coming to Alderaan yeah. Brehan knew that there was no one day they were going to be Wobani yeah exactly and I think Bale recognizes this more how you know he's like uh, compelled to fight he's been fighting since revenge of the sith when in the revenge of the sith novel padme mm-hmm. tells him explicitly bail continue what you're doing like uh, continue with the delegation of 2000 like uh but be careful and you know continue the fight basically and you see him really struggle like not only like leia is not just his daughter. He, she's Padme's biological daughter. And, and he I'm knows sh- that. And he yeah. knows that. And seeing her throughout the novel and not wanting to put her at risk, not only for his and Breha's sake, but probably for Padme's sake as well. But we see him, you know, he fights with Leia throughout the novel about how involved she can be. And yeah, Trisha, what do you think of Bale's role in this novel? Well, he's resisting the fact that his child's going to have to go to war. I think it's natural. That- yeah. That he would go, you know, go to that point. I remember as a kid, my dad teaching me. He he's a Vietnam veteran, worked mm-hmm. in the military. In where did he in, serve? Uh, in Vietnam. Yeah. Oh gosh, you're going to ask me this, and I don't I don't know. Okay, he, sorry. Served, <laughs> he served in Vietnamese. He was in an attaché to Vietnamese unit, so he wasn't okay. even with the American units. Gotcha. He, um, but he worked. He was in the army and still had, worked for a long time outside it. But, you know, he would teach me things like self-defense mm-hmm. uh, when he would be home. And But at the same time, you could tell he just, like, that's not something you want to teach your kid mm-hmm. how, to, how to do. So, Bill's having this hard time of going, all right, well, she's going to have to go do this. But at the same time, there's a lot of misunderstanding which Claudia Gray always does so well if you think about Lost Stars. You know, like miscommunication. Yeah, yeah big time. She, you know, she's re- Leia's reading it as him turning her away or not getting his approval, and that's farthest from the truth. He's just got so many other things on his plate that it, it's hard. And as a daughter of a veteran who a lot of times he wasn't there in my life and he would come home, mm-hmm. I can see that. I can see... You know, sometimes my dad would be gone for months at a time, yeah. and and then you would come back and there be it'd be strained because he doesn't, you know, it's not comfortable. It's not something that's normal. So I I felt really kind of when these moments happened, they were very real to me as yeah. an army grad. Yeah, and I actually just want to read uh, another quote. Uh, this is from page three seventy nine. Uh, it's towards the end of the fight, uh, towards the end of the novel, and. Like, it really encapsulates Breha and Bale's reason to fight overall. It's on page 379. First, Leia says, did I finally prove myself to you? And then Bale says, Leia, no, you never had to do that. I've always believed in you, and I always will. If I made you doubt that these past few months, please forgive me. Out of all the reasons we have to fight, to your mother and me, you have always been the most important one. We want to make a better galaxy for you, a better future. Sit it's been hard realizing have having to fight you have to fight too that we can't simply save you that you have to stand by our side guys reading this made me cry <laughs> yeah me too and i got totally got choked up on the first time i read it 
Yeah, it's just like, it's so, I mean, we were talking at the beginning about this novel being, feeling so realistic and like, it harkens us back to our teenage days, but those were some real emotional times, especially with all our parents, especially as you were just talking about yeah. Trisha and yeah, she's definitely got. It, it's, yeah. it's also her two parents are coming from from two different perspectives, and they're also they're from uh, the fear of death. Yeah. You've got the father who's got been fought, been through the Clone Wars, saw a lot of death, um, basically almost on the front lines, and then you've got the mother who nearly died when she was young and had to have basically her her heart and lungs replaced. Mm-hmm. So they both have this this. A very very close relationship to death, which I think right the the book uh, gave Leia the chance to see that as well. Yeah, totally. So we still need to move on. <laughs> like a, a lot to cover here. I want to talk about Mon Mothma, leader of the Rebel Alliance, and Leia's first real interactions with her. And we see how Mon basically acts as a political mentor and friend to Leia through the novel, and they. It shows that they have a close friendship and mentorship going years back before Leia joined the Rebellion. And on, on page uh, 221, uh, during a banquet meeting, Mon Mothma is talking about, like we were talking earlier just about this topic, about how the Rebels need to act more aggressive, how they, like maybe they could take a page from Saw's book. Um, hey, uh, John, would you like to read this passage right here? Yes, it's... Uh yeah. For now, we must find a way to get Saw Gerrera's partisans in line. His use of violence is indiscriminate and premature, and therefore just as dangerous to us as it, as it is to the servants of the Empire. There comes a time when refusing to stop violence can no longer be called nonviolence. We cease to be objectors and become bystanders. At some point, morality must be wedded to action, or else it's more than, more than mere vanity. Yeah, and at one point in the novel, Leia says to herself, Mon, Moth- Mon Mothma's right. It's our responsibility to do something, even if we still have to figure out the best steps to take. And she talked to me like I was an adult, not a little kid. If she can see that I can be trusted, maybe my parents will see that too. That's on page 217. And uh, yeah, Mon just seems to be like someone who's realizing the gravity of the situation uh, and is just, again, like maybe inspired by Saw as well. And we got like a conversation between Mon and Leia uh, on page 227. Trisha, would you like to read this? Yes. If you think about this, you'll realize it's one of the most powerful weapons we have. Palpatine can dictate history here in his academies and in the Imperial Starfleet, but that tricks him into believing he dictates it everywhere. He doesn't. Trillions of people understand what he truly is, and with every day that passes, more of them become willing to do whatever it takes to see the Empire fall. Right now, they only lack a flag to rally around. Soon, I hope we'll be able to give them that. Even through her gloom, Leia was struck by how utterly calm Mon Mothma was. Her parents were courageous, but their dread of what was to come was both completely palpable and understandable. Only this woman looked completely ready to accept whatever came. She wasn't afraid, and it was difficult to feel afraid when with her. Maybe it's not a flag we'll rally around, Leia thought as she watched Mon Mothma rise from her desk. Maybe it's a person. God, I love that scene. I love Mon Mothma (laughs) so much. Yeah, it's like my impression is that she fills this parental and political mentor role that Leia wished Bale would be uh, throughout the novel, like timeline alongside Breha. Um, Like, uh, you know, like she's just so inspiring. She's awesome. She's like, yeah, Trisha, like what are your thoughts on Mon Mothma in the novel? Well, you always have to have a character that you don't have that type of relationship with to push you. Like 
the dad's not going to be able to, to do it. And even Brea's not going to. Right. She's not a parent. That, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so there has to be somebody that can push you a little harder that maybe you, you want, you listen to because you tend to start ignoring your parents at mm-hmm. some point. It's just like in your, actually your body is telling you to ignore your parents because <laughs> it wants you to leave your parents. Yeah. Like, yeah. So you go find somebody else. So this is part of the dynamic. It's not something it's something we do and we see and we learn, but it's also something that our body is telling us. It's natural. Nature has programmed us to ignore our parents at some point. <laughs> so my mom and I fills this like incredible place. And Claudia Gray has used this character in like the best ways mm-hmm. possible. And I, I just want to also say she wrote this, you know, a while ago, but that whole quote is like fake news, fake news, and her <laughs> is fake news. So, <laughs> Um, you know, that's, that's his thing, right? He, he tells people things and he spreads propaganda Mm -hmm. and he, he want he tells them you're okay. Life's okay. And everything's okay. And I'm taking charge of the galaxy. And she's like, at some point people just need something that'll bring them together and they don't have it yet. So they're, and it's true. You do need somebody. My mama has, um, what you need good buzzwords people who rally yeah, yeah. Mm. can rally people mm-hmm. have good buzzwords they can say the right things and bring them in and energize them and you know that's always important for leaders that people who who don't have that charisma and it's obvious this character has that yeah sometimes it only takes one person to say just you know just the right thing at just the right moment and that immediately clicks in people start it changes people's minds yeah exactly and she really has the gravitas. She has the uh, intergalactic personality uh, and recognition. And especially like as a presumably yeah famous member of the Senate, mm-hmm. uh, she's able to carry that, but also that deep, deep sense of resolve. And it really amazes me. Like, okay, I'm just going to like a uh, full disclosure, like, uh, well, Steve and I have been talking about this on the podcast sometimes about how we think the core world may be representative of a privileged elite as it might be. And, but the thing is, and you know, that Stevens like floated the idea sometimes that maybe the core worlds like are really like one of the primary reasons like they go against the empire is has to do with their economic reasons as well. Uh, like that could be one of their core interests or self interest. But seeing what Mon Mothma does, and as we see confirmed in this latest episode of Rebels, Chandrilla, her homeworld is under imperial control. Like yeah. she's had to flee and take like people from Chandrilla. So they are making a lot of real sacrifices. And obviously we see Alderaan make the, the most ultimate. unthinkable, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like a sacrifice in episode four. Yeah, so just like moving on to like some uh, other a couple of things we see through the novel, we see the Apprentice Legislature. We've heard about it mentioned by Padme in Attack of the Clones, and you know we see that they're uh, not simply focused on policy matters. We see consistently throughout the novel. Uh, them go on missions like or on survival missions they're put on various types of worlds with various types of environments that's like the pathfinders right yeah i think so yeah yeah, like made to survive and one of the members of the apprentice legislature is a character we're going to be introduced to in the last jedi (laughs) or i guess we were introduced to her here amelin holdo uh I really love this character. She's wonder. She's smart. She's wonderfully eccentric. She's she's the Luna Lovegood of the Star Wars universe. <laughs> I I love her. She's fantastic. Uh, Trisha, what do you make of the Apprentice Legislature and uh, Amlin Holdo in specific? 
Well, they were all really good ways to kind of explore the dynamic of how Leia would have learned to be a diplomat or, you know, those things that she has to learn in her journey. But Amelon's holdos are really cool because she doesn't read her right at first. Like, she doesn't realize mm-hmm. she is. And so that's part of being a you know, diplomacy and being a leader is reading people and seeing what they need and who they are. So she finally figures out who she is. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk that there's going to be, uh, you know, some disputes, uh, that they're going to be opposite Mm -hmm. sides in The Last Jedi. And you have to remember that people in Star Wars are on the same side and they bicker all the time. Right, right. (laughs) So um, people being on the same side in this whole book is sort of a kind of a dynamic of that is that they could you know, be on the same side and disagree. That's part of it. Right. So I, I like it. And, and Leia has a lady friend now, and that's a very rare thing in star Wars to see <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> women fighting beside other women or in, you know, being on the same side or just being allies or friends. So mm-hmm. this is obviously for someone that she's, you know, and she's played by Laura Dern in the movie. Right. <laughs> You're like going, Oh, Laura Dern, you just, she's always been an icon and she's a feminist icon and this character is going to be amazing. And apparently she told Ellen DeGeneres that she said, pew, pew, pew. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, and I have not read Harry Potter, which my fan co-host and Claudia Gray have admonished me for. (laughs) So Claudia, we interviewed her before this book was announced and talked about Harry Potter just because she's like, you've got to read it. And then of course, you know, we have the loop. I remember that, Trisha. I remember that interview. Yeah, it was a great interview. Like as a as a huge Harry Potter fan myself, I remember feeling so bad for you. I I I, I never want to tell anyone they have to read something, but like, also it's Harry Potter and it's Claudia Gray telling you. It would behoove you to read this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, like uh, yeah, like I absolutely like I said, I absolutely loved Amelin. I thought she was like really. You know, like really insightful. She was very kind. She's very, um, like, just she's able to read Leia like really well overall. And yeah, I th- I'm looking forward to seeing her in the Last Jedi. And like, we know that she's a vice admiral. That she makes her way right. all the way there. Like, uh, I presume that uh, she probably. I would presume that she would become part of the... Well, no, she. we see towards the end of the novel, she engages in some rebel right, activities yeah, with yeah, Leia. Yeah, full on. And, uh, yeah, so she presumably became part of the rebellion and then the resistance. Uh, yeah, John, what were your thoughts on... I'm really looking forward to seeing how how uh, they flesh out Emma Holo's character because this will be 40 years, yeah. at least after the, the time frame of this book. And, A, they can be still be the best of friends, and, B... People can change. People can be, you know, can be good friends when they're young, and then mm-hmm. they may not just they may not just disagree. They may just not wind up not liking each other after a while. So we don't oh, know. Like, John, I know. I know. I hope this doesn't happen. But it's like you never know. Maybe that might be one of the you know in, in, internal conflicts yeah. that she has to win her back over or something like that. So I'm looking forward to that. How about you, Tricia? 
So we we know there's going to be a lot of emotion where they can pick up in the last Jedi, right? Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. they, you know, people, a lot of people have died. So yeah. they had essentially their nine eleven on steroids, and so yeah. there's going to be a lot of emotion in it. But I also know that Ryan Johnson worked really well with all the the authors and the creators that they've praised him for really giving people like not telling them things, but telling them what they needed to know. And mm-hmm. I feel like Claudia was setting something up here and that wasn't oh, yeah. oh sure <laughs> i feel like that she was setting up so we would have even more resonance when whatever happened and i feel that's for a friendship resonance it's you know in the way that lando yeah. mm-hmm. and and han solo are gonna we know that, that you know they, they ended up tidy let them use the ship again and return the jedi you don't just let somebody <laughs> do that i know they might have exactly. had problems but I, I just feel like she's going to be important to Leia in yeah. a way that will be a good way. If she mentions astrology, I may just squeal. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all will, John. <laughs> Definitely, there will be a collected and a collect. It's a little group. There will be little, little groups. You know, I'll go check the theater. Is not going to not have read this book. No way, wait, 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 no way. But but even so, there will still be a bunch of us nerds there, and uh, <laughs> like, and someone will say. I felt a disturbance in the audience, as if a million voices suddenly squealed in excitement. <laughs> uh, but one mo- on one more person in the novel, and uh, that we see Leia engage with, adding some enmity to their uh, interactions in A New Hope, Grand Moff Wilhuff Tarkin. So Leia has several close encounters with the Grand Moff, and... We see Tarkin deepen his suspicions of Leia and her family. And the Organas are really good at keeping their activities relatively secret. And I'm really curious about how Tarkin just didn't impose a full inquisition on Alderaan. Um, I'm wondering if, like, the Senate, like, still hold. I mean, the Senate has basically lost its legislative power at this point. But it's still pro- it still certainly holds some measure of sway, as we see mentioned in A New Hope. And, like, yeah, powers of influence and prestige. So do you think that was what was, like, holding Tarkin from acting fully like the Senate? I don't know if it was the Senate or if it was also just the way that Breha managed to keep um, the, the money away from Tarkin as much as possible. I mean, right. I mean, it took, I mean, even took Leia a while to find out, figure out where all that money was going um, mm-hmm. when she looked through, right. through Breha's ledger books. So I'm wondering if Tarkin just didn't see it and he, granted he's got a whole bunch of other things he's got to worry about like, oh, building this little Death Star thingy, you know, <laughs> Doing whole thing. You know, and, and, and bringing a whole bunch of other worlds into line. Um, and so I wonder if he, he just didn't have, I mean, if he did, I think, I'm thinking now he does, now by the way Clutter Gray makes it look like towards the end, uh, describes it in the end, he, he now realizes, okay, these are people I need to keep an eye on. Um, but maybe, and chances are it was probably Leia who was the one who tipped him off to that, not uh, Brea or uh, Bill, yeah. Bill, either. Yeah, Trisha, what do you think of Leia and Tarkin's interactions in this book? There's an amazing scene where he comes to the party. <laughs> I remember, yeah, of course, yeah. And then you know, Leia has to, you know, essentially has to experience this whole horrible situation with her parents that isn't even real where you know mm-hmm. they they have family drama and he's kind of like oh you know and, and all the insinuation <laughs> all and, and she has to act she has to this is where she learns that she has to lie yeah. to people and she has to make if you don't make it believable you're going to die and maybe everybody else mm. so there was you know that was a really powerful scene in the situation 
Tarkin seems like a person who he uses information, he gathers it, and he's going to, he's not going to just go engage in kind of the political gossip and backstabbing that needs to be done. He's just going to wait until he has a death star and blow you up. But he, he was trying, he had his suspicions and he was, he was intimidating them. Mm -hmm. He was definitely coming in there to try to scare them and maybe, maybe catch them in the act, which they, they got out of that, but they didn't get away forever. Right. I like how you put brought up uh, how she basically had to learn to lie, um, because uh, I think one of the things in this book is Leia learning how to be a spy. And one of the folks that I interviewed for Bellwood Banthas a couple of months ago was Vince Houghton, who is a curator at the International Spy Museum here in Washington, D.C. And he literally thinks that the, great, the number one greatest fictional spy in fiction is Leia Organa. Because of, of all she's went through, and now I, I, he hasn't read any a lot of the novels. So I'm like literally when when I spoke to him, I literally pushed him to read some of those novels, and particularly this one too, because he's going to want to see how she started becoming a spy. Yeah, that was a really great interview, and I think like Leia, she's really like battle hardened both in real battles and in the political battles we see throughout mm-hmm. this novel, and we see like that. Hey, she wasn't always this. Um, 100% steely badass that we see in A New Hope. We see her grow. We see her change. We see her learn. And those interactions with Tarkin definitely uh, harken back to that. So um, we're at the end of our discussion. And I just want to ask uh, you all for some closing thoughts on the novel. Uh, Trisha, would you like to go first? Yeah, my closing thought kind of segues off what you said is a lot of the impression of Leia, people always would talk about how she's this great politician. And I loved that the force awakens didn't start with her in some political role. She's the general, Mm -hmm. not, not that. And there was nothing actually in the movies of the original trilogy specifically that suggested she was a politician and it was more that she was a spy and this person who was doing things and a a military person that she could fly and all that stuff. So I love that this book kind of took it that way. And the the force awakens took it that way too, where she wasn't the diplomat, but we see you have to do all these things to be a spy. You have to play in all the games, Mm -hmm. you know? So, it, it's and it also lends back to Padme with the handmaid. Yeah. You know, yeah. they were like the you know they were spies and sneaking in and out and changing parts and yeah. doing sorts of different things. So you're like, okay, yeah, you can see her mother in her in this story mm-hmm. too. The real hundred percent, hundred percent. John, closing thoughts. The funny thing about this book is it's actually made me. Um, if you had asked me a ten, two, three years ago whether or not I would have been if I liked the prequels, I probably would have told you not really. This book has actually made me more of a more of a prequelist than I ever thought I would be, would be before, just because of her the way she all the stuff she goes through all the different planets she goes to uh, she goes back to Naboo all the connections to that so that's what I what really uh, resonated to me right there. Like I said, this is my favorite canon novel. Leia is one of my favorite fictional characters of all time, and seeing her growth, seeing the struggles she has to overcome in this novel, seeing the various challenges that people in the Empire and even her own parents put up against her and how she overcomes that is really inspiring. And I think anyone can take lessons from that to learn about how you are going to make yourself into the person you want and need to be mm-hmm. and how you can best service yourself to the, your world, to your planet, to the galaxy. And, um, it just like, 
again, made me love and appreciate Aldron so much more. And one of my favorite characters in this novel is Breha Organa. And seeing how she has this steely resolution throughout the novel that she really does impart onto Leia, onto Bale, onto her world as a whole, I would say. And seeing that wonderful leadership just made me recognize, while of course I love Padme and I appreciate how you know, some, maybe some of these genetics, like just play that way. I really love seeing where Leia, uh, gets her strength of resolution from her parents, Breha and Bail Organa, amazing characters, rest in peace. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. So that's going to do it for our full length discussion of Leia princess of Alderaan. And, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, discussing this with y'all. It was like, again, like I love this novel, but I feel like I even love it more after yeah, discussing yeah. it with you two. So uh, we don't have any listener reviews uh, this week. Uh, please get those reviews in. They really help the show. So we're just going to move on to uh, our beloved sacred segment, Bantha Fodder, in which we discuss uninterrupted whatever is on our minds, Star Wars, politics, or otherwise. Trisha, as our guest, would you like to go first? Well, this week we had the Star Wars Rep Matters hashtag Mm. on Twitter, and a lot of people talked about what Star Wars meant to them, which I think is really important, is to talk about what it means to you, especially for someone who feels like they need to be more represented. I was just at Geek Girl Con last month, and I hosted a panel, and I made sure that my panels were all diverse representations of women in Star Wars, because it it was Geek Girl Con, but they were all different types of women, and I asked every single one of them to answer the question, do you feel represented by Star Wars? And every single one of them, these are the most passionate women I know who are Star Wars fans, said no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, For various reasons. You know, there's a lot of intersectionality of being not represented. And even myself, I felt like as a female engineer, because there was a joke was, you know, no more white brunettes in Star Wars, please. (laughs) Uh, And I'm, I'm a white brunette. So, but even with that, I feel like I'm not represented. And in ways like the, for me, Rogue One, bring out the engineers and they brought out all older white men. And I was like, wait a minute, that's not what engineering looks like. It isn't. And so you can feel not represented for a lot of reasons. So I didn't feel represented as an engineer, not as it's not about being a woman. So there's different ways you can do it. But for all these things that people are talking about and all the characters that you connect with, the most important thing that we have to talk about is that they have to make that change at the director and the writer level. Director and writer level. It has to happen there. When you look at uh, you know what's happening with the Thor movie and how the director there is changing. He brought people in and changed the way they thought about the locals in New Zealand. He he welcomed them in, mentored them, made sure they were included, made, made sure they didn't appropriate the culture. So there's a lot of different ways, but it has to start from the top. They ha- We have to insist that they change that. And I believe because I started blogging when there weren't going to be movies, there were just books. And what we talked about then was you needed to bring 
more different types of authors in. And when you see someone like Claudia Gray come in, women, women have been writing the best books, the best reviewed books in Star Wars. Uh, and people like Shinzon, who has always written women well, um, you keep coming back to people like that, they will represent. So we need to keep insisting, not just, oh, will you make a character that represents me, that we'll bring in people who understand who you are and will bring that in naturally, that they don't have to check things off a box. They just know it because they've talked about it and lived it. So that was my thoughts. We've been nodding like crazy all the, the yeah. entire time. <laughs> yeah, Trisha, thank you so, so much for that. And uh, full disclosure, our listeners, as one of the people involved in Star Wars Rep Matters, I really appreciate you bringing it up and sharing your in my opinion, extremely important thoughts. I fully 100% agree. It has to come from the top down. And yeah. So John, what's uh, your Bantha fodder for this? Um, my Bantha fodder is sort of what we mentioned earlier in, in the show. It's, it's, um, I'm going to talk about the really quick, uh, really quick and dirty review of the star Wars Stormtroopers beyond the armor by Ryder Windham and Adam Bray. I mean, if you've ever been interested in the iconic white armored soldiers of the galactic galactic empire, this is pretty much probably the book for you. Um, it's about 174 plus, pages. Uh, it features a foreword by John Boyega, who plays our favorite Defector Finn, and the book delves deep, and I do truly mean deep, into the production lore of Stormtroopers. It describes how the armor was was designed for all of the movies in which they appear, from A New Hope through The Force Awakens and Rogue One, as well as the clone troopers of the prequel trilogy and the cartoon series, from Sand Troopers to Snow Troopers to Scout Troopers to Death Troopers and everything in between. It's awesome. Um, so basically, in some, Windham and Bray Star Wars Stormtroopers Beyond the Armor it's a seriously must buy for any serious Star Wars fan whether they came of age during the original trilogy the prequel trilogy the Clone Wars Rebels cartoon series or even the new trilogy and if you're a member of the 501st Legion um, you're definitely going to want a bunch of money to buy this book um, it was released this week, and you can re- you'll be able to read my full review on the RetroZap.com website later on this week. And a shout out to the folks at Harper Collins for being kind enough to send me an early review copy. Awesome! I can't wait to read your review and read the book itself. Uh, so my be at the fodder is a little unexpected for me this week. We talked about this guy like during uh, the our discussion, but Saw Gerrera. So. As, again, as our listeners know, I haven't always been the biggest fan of Saw Gerrera, and I'm definitely not a fan of the Partisan. Stephen, John, and I have discussed in a previous episode about Inferno Squad about how the Partisans are terrorists, how they target civilians, how they do a lot of like really horrific things. However, I feel like I'm changing my tune slightly on the conception of Saw Gerrera and uh, his like more extremist tendencies. I still don't agree with him. I still don't think that Saw Gerrera is a character that is meant to be emulated or necessarily meant to be inspired, but rather understood. We need to understand. I think that as a fandom, we need to understand why this character has its place. He's meant to show us the quote dark side of rebellion, how if we give into our aggressive tendencies, if we give into our will, our whims and just, uh, to do whatever the means are that we think are be- like best in that moment of anger and hatred, then we're simply going to end up no better than the bad guys. Having said that, I think that a reason why Saw Gerrera, uh, and it, I've gotten this from a lot of discussions with uh, fellow Star Wars people on Twitter and elsewhere, a reason he resonates so strongly is that he does have that active 
tendency. He does have that active quality about him that does inspire a lot of people to take up arms to rebellion. And as we were just discussing uh, during our Leia conversation, because and we see this in Rogue One that the rebels didn't make the full steps towards uh, being an act of rebellion against the Empire, that they didn't take up like the war that we see in the original trilogy until you had people like Saw Gerrera informing them or using tactics to further the rebellion and to make more effective dents against the enemy. I think it's really about that sort of balance that you have in an armed conflict and when you still want to go with the rules of engagement or traditional rules of engagement, Geneva Convention, what have you, or maybe how you want to go about it in or like the relative mentality you want to go about it in politics. Obviously, you're ne- you should never be violent in politics. You should never like attack. You should never do any of that sort of stuff. But rather just how, you know, when you look at the policy debates between someone like Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and understanding that maybe you need a mix of that Bernie passion with that Hillary policy expertise. And from that, you can make something that's really effective. And so I think that there is something to be learned from Saw Gerrera, just how to be more active overall, to not be complacent. I still don't think that he's a character that should inspire necessarily at all, and I do not think that he's been written well. I personally think that Saw Gerrera has suffered under writing uh, in Rogue One, in Rebels episodes. Actually, maybe his best appearance was in Clone Wars, so I need to rewatch that episode. Uh (laughs) But even so, like while I still think he could be written much better to accommodate more of these thoughts that I've been articulating just now, I think that there is some value in his conception of a character. So I still genuinely dislike him, but (laughs) yeah, I I still genuinely dislike him, but I can say with full honesty that I do appreciate him more. And that's my fodder. So thank you both so, so much for uh, being on today. And uh, Trisha, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Fangirl Cantina, or you can follow Fangirls Going Rogue at FG Going Rogue. And we do have an episode where we talk about this book on Fangirls Going Rogue that's just out. And we go into this book on as a storytelling uh, discussion on my pi- podcast hyperspace theories which is really more a storytelling centric mm. uh, podcast but it's you know it's breaking down the things that define star wars as a storyteller and heroes journeys that kind of stuff so if you're interested in to really deep dive into storytelling you can listen to that yeah, guys, check out both Fangirls Going Rogue and Hyperspace Pod. I, I've been a long, awesome. Yeah, I've been a longtime listener of Fangirls Going Rogue, one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, John, how about you? Where can people find you online? You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Juan John Jedi. That's J U A N J O H N J E D I. Awesome. You can find me on Twitter at Swarasale1. That's S-W-A-R-A-S-A-L-I-H-1. You can find Beltway Banthas on Twitter at Beltway Banthas. Uh, we would highly appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and review, and we'll read on the show. It helps us uh, boost up in the rankings, helps more people find the show. And... Uh, I also have another Star Wars project y'all might be interested in that covers the intersection between Star Wars and music. It's a Facebook group called Sounds from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. We discuss John Williams, Michael Giacchino, and everything in between. If you want to join, just send a member request and I'll accept you. All right, that does it for our episode on Leia, Princess of Alderaan, and the politics of rebellion. Thank you all for being here tonight, and may the Force be with you, always.